This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. The village of Brankston, it's a tiny little village in North Northumberland, very near the Scottish-English border. I think I'm in the heart of it. There's a grassland area, children's play park, and then the houses along the street on either side of me. You can see to each end of the village from where I am now. And there is one very vivid and distinctive landmark in the heart of the village, and I turn round and look at it. It is a red, bright red telephone box but (laughs) it has a a slightly different purpose now and to explain that I'm standing here with Clive Hallam Baker this Clive I believe is the smallest information visitor information centre in the world tell me about this and why it has brought me here to this part of Northumberland. Well, a few years ago, British Telecom were scrapping these old red phone boxes and they offered it to the village for the princely sum of £1. And so we immediately thought, yes, we'll have that, it being a bargain. And then we thought, what do we do with it? And, of course, this was a couple of years ago and coming up to the 500th anniversary of uh, the Battle of Flodden, we thought, come on, let's make a visitor centre. This is a bit tongue-in-cheek because we'd had news at the time that the visitor centre for Bannockburn at Stirling had just been revamped at the cost of five and a half million. So this investment of a pound, and of course we've made it up to the full tenor with the display inside. <laughs> the shelving. <laughs> so um, we, we now have what we've claimed, a bit again a bit tongue-in-cheek, as the world's smallest visitor centre. And a centre that tells the story of the battle of Flodden, or perhaps starts people on the journey of learning about the Battle of Flodden. And what about for people living here? How important has it been to remember it? Oh, very important. I mean, this is part of our our heritage and history. And a tiny village such as this, to have an important episode in history, even though it was only one afternoon... I sometimes rather sarcastically say this is the last exciting thing ever to happen in this village. But it was something that was desperately important. And for one afternoon, 500 years ago, this village was, in effect, the centre of Europe. This little box tells a very big story. Shall we step inside? Yes. See if we can manage it. Up to you. (laughs) So, we have a little bit of shelving. We have a large map of the area with certain areas pointed out on it. And then on the map you can see how the battle unfolded, how he was flanked to the east. Oh, and... Uh, the, and, and, yes, from the east, we camp at Barmore overnight the night before and then approach from the north and the east. Yeah. Why were they fighting the battle in the first place? Explain that, Clive. Young King, 1513, Henry VIII... And Henry VIII was looking for a bit of political kudos. And so he decided that the best way to gain a bit of popularity was to engage in that ancient English sport of declaring war on the French. Henry's sister was married to James IV of Scotland. Yes, Margaret. 
And part of the marriage treaty was the Treaty of Perpetual Peace between England and Scotland. But James and the Scots were also tied with the old alliance between Scotland and France. So James, in effect, is damned if he does attack England, and he's damned if he doesn't. After getting a, a lot of support from the French, the Scots decided to attack northern England, thus opening up a second front on which the English have to fight. This battle was an, a horrendous defeat for the Scots. Absolutely. The Scots lost their king, nine earls, 14 lords of parliament, and about 10,000 soldiers. But it was no walkover. The English lost 4,000 soldiers and five knights. Three hours is the maximum time for this battle. 14,000 men killed in that time over that battlefront is a rate of slaughter worse than some of the most horrific episodes on the Somme 400 years later. Well, this telephone box, if we just squeeze back out of it, <laughs> set in this village. This is a landscape, though, as significant as the Battle of Flodden was. This border landscape is a place that has seen some terrible battles back and forth across yes, this yes. ever-changing border. Well, I've got a list of 30, 31 battles that took place in the borders, and... Uh, not many of them are, are, are greatly commemorated. And perhaps this is reasonable, because th there, is, there is no great cross-border enmity these days. If you ask people around here whether they're English or Scotland, nine times out of ten, they'll say, no, we're borderers. And I've only lived here 30 years now, but I now consider myself a borderer, or perhaps a borderline case. <laughs> the borders are very much a geographical location of, of, of their own. Yes, with their own history. Yes, all our services here in Branxton, telephone, post, electricity, all come from Scotland. Our health centre is in Scotland, the dentist is in Scotland, we bank in Scotland, my wife does most of her, her shopping in Scotland. And you uh, live in an English and, village. Yes, but my doctor works in the Scottish health centre, but she is English. Well, you know, when you think practically about that, if come the referendum and there is to be a separation, you know, what are the practicalities of that for you? Well, it, it depends what happens. I mean, there might be a different time zone. There might even be a different currency. You might even not... Scotland might not be in the European Union, but God, I don't want to get into, into politics. It, 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 it could... It would be difficult on the border. So this land, this landscape, tells an amazing story of times, of living along a border between these two nations. Yes, the landscape is part of the story. And to, and to get a real understanding of a particular battle, I feel you have to stand on the very ground where the action took place. As we walk up, just look off to the far side, there are two buzzards in flight above us. Those buzzards are, are interesting. They've changed a lot in the time that I've been around here. They were always known as scavengers, but they've now developed quite a, a penchant for taking uh, live animals themselves. They've become killers over, over the 40 or so years that I've been watching them. It's a change in such a short spell of time. Well, it's a change, it's, it's evolution. It's, it's, it's what Charles Darwin always believed when, would happen, and, and we're seeing it. I've seen it in my lifetime with this species. 
and it rises up. I can see sheep in the distance and the farmstead at the top of Brankston Hill. It's a very, very typical agricultural scene here in the north Northumberland. And walking along with me is Lord Joycey. Is this part of your estate? This is part of the Forder Needle Estates. Actually, this is the very boundary field, our northern, northwestern boundary of, of an estate of about 16,000 acres. So your estate holds the area in which the battle was fought? It holds the majority of the area over which the battle was fought. Yes, it does. And as we walk along, James, we can look up and across back down below us Again, just reminding ourselves of the scene of that Battle of Flodden. But we're actually heading up to the monument here on Piper's Hill, and I know that this was the position that the English troops took. It's a bit of a steep climb. It's a bit of a steep climb, but it's uh, an enjoyable view when we get to the top. On the crest of the hill, then, stands this monument. So we've got the grey granite base... The grey stone cross standing tall above our heads and today with this greyish backdrop of the clouds but also the greenery and the richness of the landscape that surrounds it. And there's a plaque on the base, Flodden 1513 and it says, to the brave of both nations, erected 1910. That was probably very important to put. I think it's very important to put. Uh, we are standing on Piper's Hill now, looking all around us. Most of the land that we can see around us is in Scotland, but this little corner of England is still England. And I think we have to remember that the people who fought here at Flodden in 1513 were drawn largely from this area, not exclusively because people came from far and wide. But nonetheless, here on the day there was massive slaughter between people who had lived amongst each other anyway. We are standing in Northumberland, that's England, an English county, and yet if we look behind us, a mile and a half away is the River Tweed and the town of Coldstream, and that is Scotland. You speak as an owner of an estate which crosses that border. Our land is entirely within England, mm. but our landscape is a, is a cross-border landscape. All the land management issues that I have to deal with here are done against the context of working with English heritage, with natural England, and with all the English agencies. My neighbour two miles up the valley here, and we're looking onto him, uh, deals with Historic Scotland, deals with Scottish natural heritage, and deals with all the other Scottish agencies. So although we are dealing with the same practical issues in terms of landscape, climate, um, visitor footfall, all these sorts of things. Nonetheless, we're dealing with two different, completely different sets of agencies. And that's often a difficult issue to live with. The border actually was a very changing line down through the centuries, wasn't it? The one that we have today. <laughs> well, it, it, it's reckoned to be a, a changing line, Helen. Actually, in 2016, we're going to be commemorating 1,000 years since the Battle of Carum. Now, the Battle of Carum, it takes its name from a village just a few miles up the river here, and in that battle in 1016, the line was set down the River Tweed, and the River Tweed marks the boundary between England and Scotland. Now, border lines probably are not always best placed in rivers. They're probably best placed on watersheds. And there is a strong argument for saying, or there could be a strong argument for saying, that the border line should actually have gone along the top of the Cheviot Ridge and that we would be standing here in Scotland. 
That would have been a different story then, wouldn't it? That would have been a very different story. My wife came from the town of Jedburgh, or just outside the town of Jedburgh. Now, Jedburgh is actually south of here. And she was brave enough to marry me, but in doing so she had to come north, out of Scotland. (laughs) Up or down into England then? How would that work? Uh... (laughs) She she came up into England, but she came down the river. (laughs) There is always going to be crossing back and forth... You just wonder if, in the time of referendum, it is a harder thing for a borderer to make a decision than anywhere else in Scotland. I think that's well said. I, I think that we here on the English side, and we're, of course we're not involved in the decisions of, or, or in, in the referendum of, of, of 2014 at all, but we, we look at this and we're standing here looking across into a land which we love and which, on which we depend. You know, my nearest post office is in, is in Coldstream, just across the river here, and I've been in and out of Coldstream more times in my life than you and I have had hot dinners. But will that be a new country? I'm constantly thinking about the consequences here of Flodden. Flodden, 14-15-13, it meant the virtual annihilation of Scotland as an equal nation amongst the nations of Europe. King James IV of Scotland was an equal in terms of the European court. He was a player on the European circuit. With his demise here at Flodden, Scotland is plunged into a a, a terrible period of of 90 years and it's not until 1603 when his great-grandson, James VI, the Scottish King James VI, takes the throne of England and creates the United Kingdom. And you and I are not citizens of the United Kingdom, but for that. What about the characters, the borderers, that range, that race, in a way, of people? I don't think they've changed very much since 1513. I think they are. I think we are still very much in love with our border country here, in the way that they were in those days. We 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 are as passionate about this valley, uh, be we be we standing in England or in Scotland. We're as passionate about our place as we could ever be. I've come up from the village of Brankston and I am standing in the middle of a, of a working farm. There are sheds around me, farm buildings. And I've come to this particular point because I've come to meet Chris Burgess. Now, you're the archaeologist. You're the man who can help tell the story of what was happening on the land and what the land is revealing yeah. to us about what happened at that, on that fateful day in September 1513. So where we are now... Hopefully not at the risk of getting mown down by a tractor. What are we looking at, Chris? Well, we're, we're looking south from Branxton Hill Farm towards Flodden Hill. Flodden Hill's where the Scots Army camped for ten days before the battle. Uh, and we've been excavating on the top of Flodden Hill for four years, uh, looking at the Scottish defences and what remains of the Scottish defences. So King James IV was set on that hill? He was. <laughs> and we're talking about a battle as we are having the modern-day farming machinery rowing round us. But we're talking about a farmed landscape now, obviously. We've been field walking and metal detecting through these fields, but it's a process that takes place in concert with the farming because we need the fields to be in certain states to work on them. And whilst you can walk on it once the green starts to appear through the ground, the farmers prefer that we don't and we require their goodwill and we're quite happy to work to whatever agenda they set ultimately because we want to be back on the fields next year. So, And if we head through this gate... Um, we can go out onto the edge and you can see what James IV would have seen when we came out when he, when he moved his army down here. Do you get a thrill as you say that? Because 
I, I get quite a sort of a shiver in yeah. my bones when you say that we're walking onto the spot where he stood before his fateful end. Uh, almost every time. And it, it depends how cold and wet it is up here, to be honest. You spend part of the day thinking about what you're going to have for tea and the fact that it's cold and wet. But you do think about what it's telling you. The lure of archaeology is always the possibility of the next find. Sometimes we find nothing. Sometimes you find everything. What keeps you going is the possibility that you're going to answer questions, that you're going to give a voice, in this case, to the 10,000 dead Scotsmen, 2,500 dead Englishmen who fell on this battlefield. One of the things that we find are what we call livery badges. Livery badges are link individuals to specific commanders within the army because they don't wear uniforms. They're wearing their personal clothes. All the personal clothes look the same. So they wear a badge to say, I belong to this commander. And one of the badges that we've found is this one. It's, a, it's about three quarters of an inch, maybe just over two centimetres across. Mm-hmm. And it's made in uh, copper alloy and it's in the shape of a crown. Yes. Now, there's only one person that's allowed to wear a crown on this battlefield, and that's James. Oh and the people that served with him probably wore badges like this. And again, we found this down on the battlefield with the metal detector. And it's probably a cap badge. It, it's very crude in terms of the way it's made. And we can see the back of it, for instance, is, mm-hmm. is rough. But and the... it's been broken off a band. It's been literally levered off a band. And these things are incredibly mobile within the landscape. Those little black dots that you can see on it are probably silver gilt so it was originally it was copper and then it was dipped in silver to create a a shiny badge and you it's got two eyelets in it and you can really see how that would have been pinned you know it's like a lapel badge or a cap badge it's a cap badge we think it would have sat on a band around somebody's helmet and these are all if you if you find a picture of the scottish crown of the day mm-hmm. the features on it are all found on the scottish crown you can still get the, a sense the, of the engravings on yeah, it there the fleur de lis here mm-hmm. uh, little diamond at the top the the arch the the open spaces which would have then had uh, on the crown itself mm-hmm. there would have been a sort of velvet cap within it and it rises to a slight peak at the top it of does. the piece of metal yeah What a joy. What a thrill. Most likely, I mean, we can't say for certain, but most likely it would have been uh, one of his messengers taking an order out to part of the army. You were able to tell the story of what was happening on the land because of the special archaeology project, which which has happened because of almost like a reinvigorated interest in the Battle of Flodden. When you bring volunteers, where are they coming from? We, we get volunteers from all over. There's there's a very strong contingent that come from the immediate area and our volunteers come from Newcastle and as far south as Derbyshire and places like that. And then in the other direction, there's a strong contingent in Coldstream. Uh, and then we're starting to pick up Scottish volunteers now, so people coming from Duns and Kelso and places like that as well. They come from both sides of the border. That's what I oh, find fantastic. so fascinating. And they're making yeah. new friends, you know. People... They sit in the trench or they're walking together and they're telling each other about their children and, you know, I'm interested in this and that. And It's a social event as well, and I suspect some of them come for that social aspect, you know. That, that crossing the border to investigate a battle scene that was about those two nations clashing, mm-hmm. that's what I find, even now, 500 years later, quite, quite thrilling, just... It, it, it thrills and fascinates me because it, it's a, an act of commemoration jointly, if you like. 
you know, these people come together as friends, not enemies. And what you're going to see at Crook and Peace Centre when you get to Crook and Peace Centre is this sense that we, we need to come out of this speaking to each other, you know, without wishing to get into the politics of Scottish devolution. Um, and we've deliberately stayed away from that. You know, we need to improve contacts across the border, not make them worse. That's my feeling. That's one of the reasons I got engaged in this. So we're encouraging that. We're encouraging that through the education project at a school's level. And we're encouraging it with our volunteers as well. About a mile or so from the village of Brankston and the monument in Flodden Field, you come to another little border village here, Crookham. And I've come particularly to this place to meet Reverend Dave Herbert and the Reverend Mary Taylor. And we're meeting at the United Reformed Church in the very heart of the village. So the connection between the two places, how would you describe it? A few years ago, I was at a meeting and we were thinking about how to commemorate uh, the 500th anniversary of Flodden. The idea of a peace garden was floated. And so here we are today, looking at this beautiful garden. So we come in to the Black Path area of the garden, which represents those conditions that make for conflict. We actually then come to the red spiky area. And there's a circle here. And round the edges of the circle, you have in, in wood um, copies of great broad swords. This is the area of battle, as it were. Having gone through the area of desolation to a place of dialogue and seen new growth coming through in desolate parts to the Garden of Plenty. This is the peace dividend. This is the luxuriant growth, the colour, the vibrancy, the benefit of dialogue and peace in the world today. And at the heart of the garden is a pond mm -hmm. with fish, a bridge, a very symbolic bridge across the pond, and uh, flowing water. It's such a beautiful idea to use elements of nature around a church to help people take that path from the darkness of the bloodiness of battle to peace and reconciliation. It's so universal. In a tiny village in Northumberland, a universal message. I want it to be a working garden. You know how people talk about working gardens and they think of vegetables and growing fruits and that sort of thing. I want this to bear fruit, the fruit of peace and reconciliation in people's lives. And so I want people to be changed by walking through it. What are your thoughts, Mary, as you walk in now along the path that winds through beautifully established shrubs and, and emerging new growth through the ground? Well, we certainly have seen people coming and visiting the garden. They come in the gate, they go very carefully through it, reflecting on the different parts. They will sometimes sit down and talk. And that's nowadays so important, isn't it? Having conversations with each other. Yes. On yeah. this pilgrimage journey of life. Such a lot of thought. We've had people from this community, we've had people um, from other parts... Um, both sides of the borders. It's very much been a cross-borders initiative. How important was it to have it like that? Fundamental. There's a message in the method, and since it's the 500th commemorations that's initiated our thinking, 
it would have been outrageous for us not to have made it a cross-border adventure. And yet at a time when there could be division once again between the two nations. Well, you're in the debatable lands here and uh, cross-border alliances and frictions, the ebb and flow between the two nations is not unfamiliar territory to people around here. But actually, I've always found a warmth and a friendship that uh, no border really can um, overwhelm in this part of the world. North Northumberland and the Scottish borders, it's a fantastic place to be.